Welcome back to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Today's episode will feature audio from our live Underground Session event held on October 5th, 2019. The topic was Religious Liberty and the Disintegration of Social Discourse. The event featured a keynote address from Dr. Douglas Groteis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, as well as an expert panel comprised of Dr. Groteis, Jesse Nash, a local business lawyer, and Dr. Rosette Adera of Pillar College. If you would like more information about our live Underground Sessions events, please visit our website at www.millingtonbaptist.org backslash underground sessions. We hope you enjoy this live special event. Now, let's head to the Underground Sessions. Thank you so much, Dr. Groteis. <clears throat> I'm actually going to invite our whole panel up on stage uh, now. Uh, if you have not been with us before, the way that we do these evenings is typically we have an opening talk, and then we have a section where we have some prepared question and answers. Uh, so this will be our next uh, section of the night. So this will go on for about 40, 45 minutes. Um, and then we will take a 10-minute break. During that 10-minute break, you have the opportunity to write down questions for the panel so if you look around the room uh, in the back there, uh, Armin, can you raise your hand and just point over, raise your hand behind you. There is a uh, table there with an uh, opportunity to place down some note cards over there by Dave. Dave, can you just point out that table over there? Uh, you can write down questions that we will uh, direct to the panel during the third portion of our night after the 10-minute break. Uh, but for the second part, we're going to do some prepared question and answers. And uh, you've already met Dr. Groteis to my left. Uh, to his left is Jesse Nash. And uh, some of you may know him, but let me just give you a little of Jesse's uh, biography. He's our, our lawyer on the panel. He is a, uh, an attorney providing legal services covering real estate, business, and banking and business corporate law. Uh, he was selected to Rising Stars for 2011 to 2017, a peer designation awarded only to a select number of accomplished attorneys in every state. Prior to becoming an attorney, he studied at Seton Hall University School of Law, where he graduated in 2003, and then he's been practicing law ever since. To Jesse's left is Dr. Rosette Adera, who is the chair of the Business Administration Department at Pillar College, where she enjoys infusing biblical principles into curriculum design and instruction. She is a student of management, leadership, and organizational behavior, and she engages in the Christian's response, particularly to the issues of identity, diversity, and inclusion. She's also currently serving on the board of Garden of Hope Foundation, an initiative that is lifting the lives of youth, women, and children from the slums of Nairobi. So the way that we'll start this panel is I'm going to, you've heard from Dr. Groteis, I'd like to ask uh, Jesse and uh, Rosette to offer kind of opening statements, and then we're going to engage in a, uh, in a in a longer form conversation. So, Jesse, Hello, I'll yield the floor to you. All right, all right. Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, it's good to be back in Millington. I had a, the privilege of attending here for years and years and years, and I see a lot of familiar faces. And how about that band, huh? Yeah. Um, That's right. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Bob. Um, this is a great topic. It's near and dear to my heart. There's very few things in this day and age of political uh, rancor. There's very few things I get super fired up about, and this is one of them. It's a very short list, and this is right at the top. I just can't handle the concept of government compelling people to do things against their sincerely held religious beliefs. And there's been a lot of jurisprudence recently, a lot of Supreme Court cases, a lot of litigation about this matter. Um, and that's what I, I want to bring to bear in this discussion, is this idea that there is an active, engaged political action group out there trying to bring the church, the people of God, into conflict with the law and bring litigation to punish them. Uh, in 2017, there was an article in Rolling Stone magazine, and um, it was a profile on this guy, Tim Gill. He's a tech billionaire. He's one of the primary founders, uh, or primary funders of the LGBTQ political action movement. And his, his whole mantra is that Gender identity and sexual orientation need to be treated and protected as a protected class under the law, just like race, and that um, there should be robust national level litigation 
against every single actor that violates that, that norm. And he used the phrase, we're going to punish the evildoers, hmm. 2017. So since then, that's exactly what they've been doing. And there's been laws passed in, uh, in states. We saw a masterpiece cake shop case last year. Um, and, um, and just real hostility and, and legal structural you know, litigation. Like you know, people with guns will come to your business and make you do stuff you don't want to do. Um, and, um, and so uh, fortunately, the people of faith uh, you know, have been pushing back. And there's been a lot of victories. I'll, I'll talk to you guys about some of the recent cases. But I'm, I'm focused on that. I'm focused on the idea. Um, as Professor Gro or Dr. Grothuis told us about um, the uh, First Amendment. There's the, the Free Exercise Clause and the Anti-Establishment Clause, right? Government cannot uh, prevent, cannot pass a law that uh, protects, that uh, uh, impinges on the free exercise of religion. That's exactly what they're trying to do, and there's litigation everywhere about this. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, we've been very successful so far. We should praise God for that. Um, and I uh, want to talk more about that. I also want to talk about political discourse and how we can engage with those, with those with whom we disagree in a polite, civil manner, in a way that's honoring to Christ, and how that works. That's an exciting conversation. Just this general idea that if you're not out of step with culture, you're not living for Christ. So we should not wonder why these conversations are difficult. We shouldn't wonder why there's people out to, to get people of faith. That's, that's, we're told that way. Like Paul was, what, thrice beaten, twice shipwrecked, a whole litany of abuse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of that in our culture. And uh, we should talk about it, but we should also engage with people about that too. All right, Dr. Adara. Wow, so my job is to bring a slightly different perspective. And thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this um, amazing discussion. So I want to uh, just raise a couple points, uh, and some of the points might just come against some of the points that they've raised, and that's fine. That's where we are here. The first is that um, religious liberty is under threat. Um, and so we agree on that. But while it is easy to find illustrations from those who undermine people of faith or even undermine the gospel, I believe that the biggest threat is from us, Christians behaving badly, or even Christians not speaking up when we're supposed to speak up. So our silence is resounding. As people of faith, and I believe I can speak to um, at least the three faiths that come from Father Abraham, we agree on um, some tenets of doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. The second point is that as a college professor, I see more and more silencing on college campuses. So we have moved away from uh, the liberal arts. We've moved away, we've shied away from uh, uh, liberal professors who would have you know, pushed us uh, the other edge. But then we've also pulled too far back, I believe. And in so doing, we're now producing students who are efficient, um, students who are, we are now producing graduates who have degrees that are utilitarian, uh, but graduates who are uncomfortable with with controversy, and they're uncomfortable with being in places where they're challenged, uh, their opinions are challenged, or their beliefs are challenged. The third point um, is that divide and conquer is real. My perspective is colored by my lived history as a former refugee from Rwanda. And so I know that sometimes when we are so divided and we cannot come together, the results can be disastrous. And so we find that we are calling each other evil, right? And evil is expedient. Evil is unredeemable. There is a finality to evil that um, causes us to refuse to engage with the other. In the Rwandan case, dehumanizing the other made it not only thinkable, but it made it necessary to destroy the other. I am drawn to the third option. Um, as illustrated by Miles McPherson, the pastor of Rock Church in San Diego. As things are, we seem to be stuck with only two options, us or them. The zero-sum game mentality that says, you must lose in order for me to win. God's third option invites us to honor that which we have in common, that we are all made in his image and therefore equal applicants of God's mercy and redemption. Just this week, we saw an illustration of uh, the Jal family um, when the younger brother of a murdered brother reached out and extended mercy and grace, and in so doing, 
was an, an actual witness uh, for Christ? Why did we have a collective gasp, even as Christians, when that is the most Christ-like thing that we could have seen um, this week? When religious liberty is coupled with social discourse, it is with the understanding that there is room for many beliefs, and I believe Dr. Um, Goodheis has already addressed that point. And so as we continue to even train and teach our students, we teach them to be able to um, defend what they believe, but to do so with gentleness and respect, as we are told in 1 Peter 3.15. When religious liberty is coupled with social discourse, it encourages questions and questioning. As a Christian, yes, I am a believer and a person of faith, but that does not mean that I suspend my thinking. As a matter of fact, my faith allows me to question not only my beliefs, but to question God. Habakkuk, Moses, David, Job, and all these other giants in the Christian faith and uh, Jewish tradition often questioned God. They had many questions. So when God invites us to come and reason together, he expects us to come to him authentically, to approach him with all the questions that we have. So I'm going to hope that there will be opportunity for me to revisit some of those thoughts. Mm -hmm. That'd be great. All right, so as, in terms of starting the discussion tonight, uh, the first question, just broad question I want to ask is this, um, to, and to the whole panel. Uh, when you survey the landscape of religious liberty in America, what is it that you see, and how does that differ from previous generations? And so I'd like to maybe come back and start with Jesse, because I want you to, you didn't get a chance to mention particular cases that are coming in the pipeline. Maybe you could take a second to, uh, to answer the question I, I just asked, but also speak into those particular cases. Sure. Okay, so, so in terms of religious liberty cases, um, the, I guess the, the seminal, well, okay, let me first say this. When you go to law school and you take con constitutional law, mm -hmm. um, you get to the religious liberty and First Amendment section, it's a hot mess. Okay, every case contradicts the case before it, and every case proposes a new test for evaluating this anti-establishment uh, case versus this free exercise case, and the, the jurisprudence is all over the place, and it's very difficult to, to even speak cogently about a one-size-fits-all test for what sorts mm -hmm. of public expressions of religious thought are okay versus not okay, when religious uh, exercise conflict, conflates or conflicts with other, other um, uh, uh, norms in society, which one prevails, it's a mess. All right, so what the current Supreme Court is doing is it is, okay, so it, uh, Justice Roberts, what's defined his um, tenure as Chief Justice, is that he wants to move very incrementally and very deliberately in how the cases are decided. It's actually very frustrating as, as a uh, as a conservative, um, some of the things he's done. But um, uh, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop last year, the Supreme Court ruled, I believe it was 7-2, that, um, that the guy in, in Colorado who was asked to bake a cake for a gay wedding wouldn't because he thought he violated his sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, the court struck down that law, and they did it on the basis, and on very narrow grounds. They did it on the grounds that the, um, co the, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission hearings denigrated this man's faith. They went out of their way to say, it is ridiculous the fact that you think that you have the right to believe that you shouldn't be compelled to support. They actually specifically said that his, his belief was nonsense. And the court, the court was like, no, you can't do that. So they struck mm -hmm. that down. Now they could have said, when faith and the, you know, the st mm -hmm. compelling state interest of making sure everyone gets treated equally mm -hmm. in a place of public business, when those two norms conflate, faith wins, right? They could have said that, they didn't. They wanted to move incrementally. Mm -hmm. So in this past term, um, and I forget the name of the case, but it's a case in Michigan, and um, um, there's something called certiari, and there's four of the nine justices have to vote to approve a case to come before the court. And there was one case that they were thinking of granting cert for, that's the term they use. Mm -hmm. And um, the four most conservative justices denied cert, but when they denied cert, they said, we acknowledge, they wrote a very, very extraordinary and unusual and frankly odd step, but they, 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 they wrote that they acknowledge that the law in this area is a hot mess. Basically begging people to bring them a case where they could declare once and for all, you know, how would the rules by which society should move, move forward in terms of religious liberty. So it's a very, very exciting time to be, uh, to be watching this. This 2020 Supreme Court, I think there's seven or eight, um, depending on how you count them, 
uh, religious uh, liberty cases coming before the Supreme Court this very term, which is super exciting because I'm hoping that the court is going to take a broader sweep and actually, you know, make law we can all live with. Because what happens when there's all this uncertainty, right? Then you get the Tim Gills of the world trying to game the system by getting laws passed in these various states to try to force this litigation and move the ball, right? If there's a clear, bright line rule in terms of how religious liberty functions and, and, and with respect to these other norms, then society can kind of like get used to that. Everyone can kind of lock in, okay, this is the rule book, let's go. When there's confusion, it creates tension. And that's what we've been seeing. And frankly, it's not good for, it, it's exacerbating this tough political moment we're in because this uncertainty is bringing this controversy and, and people are, are, get, are jumping in to try to move the ball, to pull the, the, the tug of war rope in their direction and it's creating conflict. So I'm hoping there's gonna be some awesome cases coming in this next, next term. I'm hoping that, frankly, hoping that religious liberty prevails Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's a more bright line rule moving forward. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Groteis, maybe a, uh, a secondary question with that you mentioned in your talk was the difference between freedom of religion and freedom of worship. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What specifically is that and why should we be concerned about that? Right. Well, from a biblical viewpoint, all of our lives should be in worship of the triune God. Mm -hmm. But the way that term is usually used in the broader public is that worship has to do with specifically religious activities done when religious communities come together. Yeah. So if a politician will say, and I have one in mind who I will not name, mm -hmm. we're all for freedom of worship. What this person means is we will allow you to exercise your religious beliefs in a particular sphere of life, but not really in the public realm, because in the public realm, of course, we have, we have to remember the separation of church and state, which, as I said, is not in any founding document. No, we do not have an established church. We have the anti-establishment provision, but we have freedom of religion, and that freedom of religion means freedom in every in any area of life, including politics, law, and everything else. So when you hear that word, the way I've picked it up in the last few years, it tends to mean, well, let's put the religious people in kind of a ghetto, and we'll let them do whatever they want there, but in terms of their beliefs making a difference in law, politics, public policy, well, that's where we have to draw the line. And this is really what I call the naked public square view, which mm -hmm. is not naked at all. It's actually dressed up secularism. Sure, sure. Um, Dr. Adara, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I cited that study from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing I found interesting from that study was, was this. They, they noted that while religious liberty has been a core component of Baptist political theology, in their study, very few people listed it as a core concern particularly young people at 28% and non-white respondents at 13%. Mm -hmm. So my question, and this really, I mean, you can answer first. I'd actually love to hear from all three of you about why are people not, I mean, we're doing a whole thing tonight about religious liberty, but I'm not sure that people care as much about it as they should. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, why are people not caring about religious liberty, and why does there seem to be a racial divide on this issue? Mm. Okay. So first, I will respond to it by saying one of two things. One, uh, my perspective is colored by the fact that I'm an immigrant to this country. Mm -hmm. Most immigrants come to this country holding conservative views on a number of points. Uh, the definition of marriage, uh, the protection of life, um, until it gets to a point where they identify a part particular political party that might be the flag bearer of those conservative views, but find themselves outside of that political party, um, either based on their status as immigrants or their status as racialized people, et cetera, et cetera. So what that then um, produces is um, a complete tension. It brings about some tension. I believe in these things, but the folks who are espousing these things do not include me in that circle. Right? And so 
then from then on it becomes a matter of struggling for basic human rights, which they might see as not protected by those who would be the flag bearers. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. Um, and so where the racial divide comes in is those tensions of, I am so busy just trying to live, trying to survive. Um, and I will go into that closed space, that sacred closed space to worship in the black church or to worship in the immigrant churches. A friend of mine who's husband is a pastor of an immigrant church. I was asking, why is it that immigrants come to this country, whether from Africa or other places, and they end up coalescing around their own churches? You find Ghanaian Baptists gathering as Ghanaian Baptists when there is a beautiful Baptist church over here. Part of it is, oops, I'm not included, therefore I'm going to create this circle where I might be free in this particular circle. So some of it, I think, I believe comes from that. Okay. Throw the same question to both Jesse and Dr. Grotes. The first question again is, why are people not caring about religious liberty? And if, if you'd like to speak to the racial question, you can as well. Sure, sure. So, so as to the, the racial issue, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's real. It's a, a real dynamic of, that, that we're mm -hmm. up against. And, and my read on that is this. What especially, especially the LGBTQ community has done is they followed the roadmap of the civil rights movement in terms of affecting uh, political and social change uh, to, to provide for their inclusion in society. And, um, and some of that, a lot of that was justified. And, um, and it's true, you know, there were people living horrible lives of isolation and loneliness. And, and, and as, as Christians, people of faith, we should, our hearts should go out to, to them. So um, because there's, there's this sense that they are um, moving the, the um, society away from oppression and marginalization of traditionally disfavored people, I think that resonates with racial minorities who suffered horrible historical racial animus. And I think that there's a, there's a, there's a natural sympathy with minority groups and folks in the LGBTQ community we're trying to move the social goalposts on that. I think that's why there's that correlation. Why do people care less about religious liberty? Um, I strongly believe, and I, I hope we could talk more about this, but I strongly believe that we're in a moment where people don't have faith in their life. They don't have a sense of broader meaning. So they go looking for meaning. And a lot of people have found pseudo meaning, pseudo purpose in getting involved politically. And when that happens, they are very militant, they are very animated, they are very motivated, and they view those who disagree with them as nothing short of evil, as I mentioned earlier. So I, I think there is a, as, as society gets more and more secularized, this kind of you know, um, uh, humanistic progressivism is, an, is, is a de facto religion. And it's motivating people to be more and more engaged, more and more involved in ways that we hadn't quite seen in the past. And they are militantly, aggressively coming after people of faith in a lot of these areas. So I think there's that kind of demographical movement away from faith that um, is opposed to religious liberty, and that's kind of why you're starting to see those numbers. Okay. Dr. Grotes? Well, if that indeed is happening, I think a lot of it has to do because people have not been challenged in their own situation, they may be complacent. And in fact, they may not know a whole lot about the history of religious liberty. They may not know much about the founding ideals of the United States. And I try to emphasize that as much as I can, that uh, Os Guinness says the United States is, for all of its faults, the lead society on the planet. And I was just listening to NPR recently, and there was a, a foreign reporter who was concerned about something happening in the United States. And she said, after all, this is a paraphrase, after all, you really are the most important democracy in the world. It was an interesting little comment. She didn't say it quite the way I said it, but it was like, we look to you as an example. And when you aren't treating, in this case it was the press, very well, then this concerns us. So I think Americans uh, need to take seriously these five freedoms of the First Amendment, mm -hmm. the Declaration, which I think is the why of America, the Constitution, the how of America. And there are people who want to just dismiss it because, well, we've moved on 
past that. In this article I was reading from in Harper's, another lawyer said, no offense, another lawyer <laughs> said, as I said that lawyer, said, well, you know, it's okay if we treat the Constitution like a poem, but not as a legal document, not something that tells us truth about how we should treat each other. Let's just kind of view it as a poem. And that concerns me deeply. I'd like to come back to the civil discourse piece in, uh, in, in a third section here, but I want to move on specifically to the area of the sexual orientation and gender identity laws. Um, so again, it seems like that's a specific area where religious liberty is being hotly contested. So legislation like, and Jesse mentioned this before, the Equality Act, um, and, and if you're a parent, various school curriculum changes are removing even the possibility of religious exemptions. So um, I guess, Jesse, I'll throw it back to you as the lawyer first. What is your perspective on these laws, and how should we think through our response? And before you answer, I will just acknowledge the underground that we did last fall, we did on sexual orientation and, and gender identity issues, and we were coming at that last year from a much different perspective than this, because this is really about the government now compelling uh, people with sincerely held religious beliefs to conform to what they're, to what they're mandating. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about sure. the Equality so, Act to start with that. So, um, the, yeah, the Equality Act um, is, is mandating that there is, the school curricula include mention of um, LGBTQ individuals and specifically highlight the fact that these individuals are LGBTQ and that they've contributed to society and kind of you know, given that, giving them a place in the, in the broader narrative. Um, it, it, um, have they come out and said that there's no religious exemption to that? Because I, I don't... My understanding of the Equality Act was they were removing religious exemptions okay. from part of that. So, so, yeah, so what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, look, no matter what your faith is, you at least need to hear this narrative. Particularly in terms of hiring for religious organizations. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah. okay we're talking yes. about hiring. Yeah, so there's, so there's the, what's called a ministerial exception to this that the Supreme Court has, has upheld, which is the idea that, look, when it comes to people who are actually putting the faith out there, you, you, you can't compel a church to hire people they don't want to hire, right? But when it comes to, you know, non-ministerial roles, you can. And that's the Supreme Court's considering a couple cases on that this next term. So that's at the Supreme Court level. In, in New Jersey with this, with, with, with this law, I'm, I, I, I did, the right of the parent to keep their child um, out of that curricula. Um, I mean, you always have the ability to pull your kids out of public schools and put them in, in private Christian schools. But um, so, so I, I, I doubt, I doubt the, um, there's going to be a, uh, a direct, I don't want my kid to go to school today. Yes, you must send your kid to school today. And therefore, there's a litigation that, that comes out of that. Um, I will say this more broadly about SOGI laws. So, the, the key to, you know, we, we've, I, I've, I've talked to a few churches, this being one of them, about getting their, um, their uh, policies and their handbooks and their um, bylaws in, in place to deal with this issue. Because um, as places of a public accommodation, you're liable to um, suit if all are not open to the user facilities. A, a massive case was uh, in Ocean Grove. There's that, that pavilion right on the boardwalk. It's owned by the Methodists. They didn't want to have gay marriages there. There's a big gay community in the area. They wanted to have gay marriages there. The Methodists wouldn't let them. There was, there was like suits that went on for like eight or nine years, millions of dollars in legal fees um, uh, spent on, on just defending the fact that they don't want to have gay marriage. And, the, and ultimately, there was a settlement. But the point is, SOGI laws are coming for places of public accommodation, including religious organizations. And the only defense that you have is to adopt neutrally um, uh, neutral policies that tie the use of those facilities in with your, your, your faith. So you have to say, this is a space that's used only for the promulgation of our religious beliefs. You have to codify that, put it in the documents. Because if you let everybody use it for general secularized purpose, you're liable to suits. It's very much an open issue. Um, it's very much unsettled. Um, I, I'd like to see the Supreme Court take something like that up because that would you know, provide more certainty. But it's a big problem, and look, even if a lot of these cases, the Christians are winning, right? It's a lot of good news to report, to be honest with you. But it's very expensive. Like the Masterpiece Cake guy, he gets sued like, you know, a couple times a year. Uh, so he gets, and, and uh, fortunately, um, I think it's the Heritage Foundation um, has given him free legal advice for life. So they've actually 
gone out and raised money and said, look, we got your back, for Jack Phillips, we got your back for life. So, um, but he's constantly in court and it's very expensive and time consuming and distracting. So even when we win, we kind of lose with this ongoing litigation. So it's something to keep an eye on. I don't think, I don't think there's, you know, people are gonna march in here and make us have gay weddings in LinkedIn anytime soon. Um, but um, it, it's definitely something to watch. Uh, Dr. Adira, you, you mentioned Pillar College, mm -hmm. which you have some literature upstairs, mm -hmm. only evangelical accredited school in New Jersey. Yes. Have you, guys, have you as an institution dealt with some of these uh, SOGI laws that are coming uh, down the pike? To my understanding, because of our mission and identity, we do still have you know, some kind of um, mm -hmm. safety leeway, um, at least for the time being. Um, occasionally, we have uh, reached out to folks who, have, who profess um, Christianity, uh, which is one of our first lines of defense in terms of employment. And so, um, or, or they have approached us and said, could we please teach? And I, there is a case recently of someone who approached uh, my department and wanted to teach business. And so when we pursued this individual, because on paper and in terms of their faith profession, we send out a statement of faith that they have to read and sign. And the statement of faith has, it's almost the Apostles' Creed, I believe in this and I believe in this. Um, and so the individual signed it, except that it also, you know, has a very clear definition of what marriage is. And so this individual returned it and said, unfortunately, uh, based on this one statement, um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to pull out um, my candidacy for this position because I do not agree with that statement. So in that regard, um, it was a very amicable separation, if you will. But that's not to mean that down the pike, uh, we may not be challenged on some point. Sure. Um, Dr. Groteis, so uh, on your outline, you cited actually as a group to follow up with is the Alliance Defending Freedom, which uh, I think it's a Southern Poverty Law. I forget the, the title of that organization, but I think they've labeled them as a hate group. So my question to you is, some groups that stand for traditional family values are being labeled as hate groups, like which I just mentioned. What, why is this problematic and why should we be concerned? Well, that's, that's a deep question. How does our culture use the word hate? And we have these words like Islamophobic and homophobic and transphobic and so on. And you have to look at the root of this usage because a phobia is an irrational fear. Now, it's interesting that if you're homophobic, you're viewed as irrational but also evil. So it's not just that you're irrational and you're out of your mind, you're also evil. And it also reduces a moral judgment to a statement about one's affections or about fear or love. So we've lost the basic categories of moral discourse in our country, and it's been reduced to psychological name-calling, typically. So we have a name for it. It's a disorder, and it's hateful, and it's horrible. And if we call you this, then we don't have to take seriously anything you have to say. So the social discourse has been so debased and debauched, it's hard to know even where to start with these kinds of things. And I think what we need to do if we're followers of Christ, is to say that every human being, from conception on, red and yellow, black and white, everyone is made in the image and likeness of God and must be respected and loved as such, period. Mm -hmm. But God, the same God that created us in his image, created us to thrive in certain relationships, given our natures. So God has told us that heterosexual monogamy is the way to thrive and what marriage is. So we want to love and respect all people and honor all people because of the image of God, but also realize that that same God has showed us the way of life. And we as followers of Christ and believers in the Bible want to articulate what are legitimate and illegitimate patterns of human sexuality. It's extremely difficult to do that in this setting because if you say that there really is no such thing as same-sex marriage, it's like there's no such thing as a, a uh, four-sided triangle, I mean, marriage just is heterosexual, then the idea is, well, you hate the people who disagree with you. No, you disagree with the people who disagree with you. 
Why does disagreement now have to be hate? Well, maybe sometimes it is. Maybe sometimes people that are on the forefront of this become vicious and hateful, and we have to always guard our hearts and say, are we loving people and are we respecting people made in God's image? But even if we are, uh, the discourse is so rotten in many ways that you'll just be rejected as, as some kind of phobia, but we should be able to articulate our views more carefully and, and talk about mutual respect and constitutional rights mm-hmm. and say, can't we agree to disagree agreeably on this? And as you were saying, for some people, no, I mean, we're out to, they're out to kill. They're out to do in the evildoers. But we dare not, Christians, that is, Christians dare not become that vicious or vicious at all uh, on our side of it, by no means, because our Lord doesn't allow that. Mm-hmm. He talks about... Uh, loving your neighbor and loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and going the second mile. So it can't be business as usual in politics if you're a Christian. You have a higher standard. That doesn't mean pull out and do nothing either. Well, that's a good segue into my third overarching question, which is this. Um, At the underground sessions, we typically like to pick topics that are hot-button issues in the culture. And so right now, as we mentioned, religious liberty certainly fits the bill and I think particularly because of a growing secular mindset amongst Americans. Additionally, the breakdown of social and political discourse seems to be contributing to this. Now, in your, and this is really to all of you, in your opinion, is this true? And how has the breakdown of civil discourse raised the temperature on religious liberty? So we've talked a little bit about how it seems like we're calling all of our opponents evil. This is kind of a question getting at that. Mm-hmm. So whoever wants to go first on that, I'd love to hear from all of you. Um, let me just pick up from where um, Dr. Grutas um, just uh, left off in the sense that we, on the Christian side of things, are not exempt or rather... Um, we have also participated in this rage. We have participated um, in, in the calling the other side evil simply because we disagree with them. And that, I feel, as I said it before in my opening statement, is one of the greatest threats to religious liberty. Because what happens then is that there is a silencing effect. Once we silence the other, then there is no conversation, right? Um, and so that has the tendency then to really, it's a, it's a slippery slope from there um, in terms of where we might even be able to salvage the opportunity to be a witness uh, for Christ. And so because of that, um, and I, I can think of a number of examples. One was a couple, there's a church a couple years ago that had these banners, God hates you. Remember those ones, right? Um, and so they had the banners of God hates you, and they stood in front of um, uh, abortion clinics and said, God hates you, and, and stood, um, in one case, there was a gentleman who, uh, a veteran who uh, I think had come from Iraq and had passed away and the family was trying to bury them and this church was right in front of them saying, God hates you. Um, and that we, the Christian church suffers. We lose ground every time people who are flag bearers of the cross are at the forefront of that kind of um, um, venom, if you, uh, if you will. The other example I'd like to give, as I said, is the case of Rwanda. Now, the church in Rwanda suffered a huge blow months and days and weeks leading to the genocide and even after the genocide. The reason being that Christians, clergy, men and women of God took an active part in the genocide. And when people took refuge in the sanctuary universal places of safety, churches. These pastors were the first ones to open the doors and let the Nhedahamwe come in and kill and burn and pillage and rape, etc. In some cases, they even turned people who were trying to seek refuge and close the doors and padlock them, etc. And they are visible folks with collars, um, bishops who did this, nuns who did this. The end the result of that is that there was the only voice of reason during that time 
was the Mufti of Kigali who said, there is no Tutsi, there is no Hutu, we are all Muslim. And believe it or not, the Muslims of that time listened to this one voice of reason. And so mosques then opened doors and let people in and shielded and protected people, and many survived because of that. What happened after the genocide is a revival of Islam in Rwanda. The church lost a lot of ground. And so when I listen to Fox News and MSNBC and Fox, um, rather, people of God engaging in this kind of discourse, I always, there is an echo. Where have we seen this before and where is it leading? And so, I mean, I just want to leave that there, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, we on the side of Christ sometimes are offensive in the way that we respond to the other. It's interesting. Ben, ben Sass, uh, Senator Ben Sass, wrote a book called Them. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that book, he notes particularly that we, we tend to get ourselves an echo chamber. So mm -hmm. if we only listen to one perspective and not others, mm -hmm. um, then it's reinforcing and we're only talking with people that agree with us. Um, it's very easy then to call people evil. Or mm -hmm. social media algorithms are only posting things on there, which Facebook hasn't helped with this, uh, of things that we agree with. It's very easy to not engage with people who disagree with us, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is to the point you're making. Mm -hmm. Well, and to do that, it takes some intellectual discipline and character. Right. For one thing, you have to investigate what sources are worth studying, mm -hmm. and that will probably go far beyond Facebook or Instagram. <laughs> so you might even want to read books. You know, <laughs> I brought a few books with me. I read a book. It might take four or five hours. You might learn something, mm -hmm. and develop your views, and be less prone to give these instant responses, which are so easy to give, so I think we need a lot of intellectual fortification in terms of studying some of these great legal political issues, things of the United States and of how religious diversity has been handled around the world. Now, it's something I've been studying for many years now, but you don't have to be a professor to look into this, and I think uh, what you're doing here is very significant in terms of educating people in the church and influenced by the church about these issues because you have to go deeper mm -hmm. than the echo chamber. You have to discipline yourself to read and think about ideas you don't agree with. And if you don't agree with them, why don't you disagree with them? Mm -hmm. So you can go back and forth. And there's something now which is called um, whataboutism. Right. I don't know if you've heard of this, but if someone makes a point against your political view, you don't respond to it, you just say, well, what about your person who's so horrible? Mm -hmm. So you never actually get to the issues, you just trade insults, what about this, what about that, what about this? Mm -hmm. And that's not civil discourse. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe in some cases, we simply need to not even try to communicate some of these basic themes in things like Twitter. Right? You know, public policy now is set by tweets. And um, I'm an old guy, you know, I'm 62, and I'm looking at this and saying, you know, the president tweeted and so-and-so tweeted, and now this means the world is on edge. Be, oh, my goodness, what about speeches and books and a little more uh, intellectual heft here? So I'll stop. What, <laughs> that's your point. <laughs> One of the most meaningful things I did in seminary, I think it was for your ethics class, that you required the media fast, or was that for the... Yeah, so... Uh, one of the things he required for his class is that you actually take a week-long fast from media. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me when I actually turned off the television and didn't even try and rode in the car and didn't listen to the radio how much time I spend doing those things. And, and apart from doing that, how much time you actually have to sit and think. Mm -hmm. and, and visual mediums, you know, it's been said that a picture communicates a thousand words, and that mm -hmm. I think is true to some extent. But that also means that we're taking in a lot of stuff without actually thinking about it. And, and print media helps us to actually pause and think as, a t in, a, as opposed to just visceral react, viscerally reacting to things. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you remembered that. I did, I, it, was, it was impactful, so thank you for what you do. <laughs> um, Bob, um, yes. this, is, uh, this very question is, is, is a bit of a um, hobby horse of mine. 
Mm -hmm. um, I, over and over again in my life, we're I going to end after you answer. So, oh, preach if you so want to. So make it super long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to end this segment, not the whole so, night. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, time and time again, I'm put in situations where I, I'm at everyone's token uh, evangelical, mm. right? So n they never see one. They've never met one. They don't. You know, I, I, one time I had to do... Um, You're like a hobbit, right? Yeah, exactly, like Sasquatch. <laughs> you, you, there's a lot of talk, you never see one. Um, uh, but I was doing work at Columbia University, uh, working with their professors on commercializing their technologies there, and um, um, one of them Googled me and realized that I did my undergraduate work at Liberty University. And there was a line of professors down the hall to talk to me about it. They were so intrigued by, like, oh my goodness, he... Look, he talks. He forms sentences, and it was it was like you know like a monkey playing piano to them. That I was like there saying stuff. It was it was really odd. Um, and since then, I, I you know I try to make it my business. Everybody knows who I am and where I stand um, in a respectful, dignified way, and um, I try to engage in polite discussion about matters of philosophy and politics and faith and ethics with people when I can. And I think that what we're seeing in society, and, and, and Ben Sass is dead on with that, is that there's something called a great sort happening. Um, there's a book called Charles Murray, Coming Apart, came out mm -hmm. 10 years ago, it's an amazing book. Mm -hmm. But what he's talking about is demographical trends in the United States where people are sorting themselves along racial, mm -hmm. ethnic, and more particularly socio-political and educational level lines. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm saying this in Somerset County, New Jersey, we're among the worst. So, so there's the there's the idea that everybody with the degree, everybody in the you know the winners in the uh, in the um, cognitive uh, lottery of life are all joining together in one big megalopolis, and out there in flyover country is everybody else. And th th that that prognosis came home to roost in the 2016 election. Um, so what we're seeing is that people are cloistering with like-minded individuals. So and a church. Is a, is, a, is a hotbed of people cloistering with like-minded individuals, right? So you think about the Great Commission, right? You think about, you know, go eat in all the world, make disciples. Mm -hmm. um, are, are we doing that? Are we engaging with people in our community the way we should? Not, not you know, joining our Twitter mob or our Facebook group and interacting with people who are basically an echo chamber. But are we getting out there and talking to people we disagree with? Because many of you have had this experience where, let's just say you had an issue with gay people. And all of a sudden, you meet a gay person. And it turns out they're not so bad. They're a normal you know, human being, and they, you know, they talk and they think and they breathe and they, you know, they they live their lives. And all of a sudden, you're like, wow, this issue is now more human for me. I, I don't disagree, I don't agree with them, but I can kind of understand where they're coming from and have a sense of empathy about the situation. Maybe be a little bit more Christ-like in how I interact on this issue. Right? Many of you have had that experience. Well, the the, the you know non-Christians are like that with us. Right? A lot of them have never had a serious, purposeful conversation with a person of principled faith. Mm -hmm. And when that happens and they start to understand, no, we don't hate gay people. This is what we believe and this is why. And you start to kind of have that conversation and you humanize this for people. It starts to, it starts to open up discussion. And I'm not saying that they're going to change our minds on some of these issues or we're going to change their minds on some of these issues. Um, the Lord's going Lord's to work in people's hearts and the Holy Spirit's going to do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. But the point is, are you interacting? Are the people of faith interacting with others in a serious way? Not to, not to infiltrate and, 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 and um, persuade, but simply, simply to be a human, be part of a society, be part of a community. Because, because I'll tell you what, back to what I was saying before about, hey, look, we're winning all these Supreme Court cases. Well, look, there's nine people on that court, right? And someday it's not going to the, be the same nine people that are there now, and God only knows what they're going to decide, and this, this thinking swing the other way. And if the votes are, are, are in that favor, and you have, you have progressive politicians electing or appointing progressive judges, you're going to have law swinging the other way, right? So as people of faith, what we need to do is engage with, our, with, with society. They need to understand who we are and what we're about, and they need to understand that we do have a place in, in the public sphere, right? That we, we are not to be left out of it, that, that people of faith do have something to add to society, and we're not just a bunch of homophobic, homophobic bigots um, kind of, you know, in our own echo chamber. And um, I, I think that, that we're really missing the ball in this. I think that 100 years from now, when people look at the church, what uh, the church of our time, they're going to judge us harshly on a couple of things. And I think at the top of the list, and this is going to be controversial here, um, but the top of the list is how we've engaged on political issues. 
we've allowed ourselves to be turned into a political action group. And when that happens, we get treated like a political action group. Um, you know, the, the, Jesus didn't just ascend on a cloud and say, go ye into all the world and vote Republican, right? He, that's, that's not, the Republican Party and, and, and the Church of Christ are not synonymous, right? And I know that that, that, that feels weird to hear but, um, for some people, but we need to be a little bit more nuanced with how we view politics mm -hmm. and realize that it is, it is on, a, on a good day, it's sausage making, right? These are, these are not people living, living for Christ, uh, you know, uh, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with their God around Washington. It is, a, it is a messy situation. I think the church has let itself get sullied with a lot of political discourse. I think we have a place in it. I think we should be energetically engaged in politics. But I think when, when society views us as a political force, full stop, that's a problem. We're not doing it right. And I'll go back to, I'll end with what I said before. If we are not out of step with society, if we are not made to feel uncomfortable with who we are and what we believe, we are not walking for Christ. Right? So if you, if you feel out of step, if you feel out of, out of sync, if you feel like kind of you're creating a little bit of a controversy when you speak your faith, that is, that is an affirmation that you're, you're, you're doing what you need to be doing to fulfill the Great Commission. You should expect it. That's what the Bible says happens when you're bold for Christ. So I would encourage more, more engagement. Find somebody, have a conversation, civil conversation, respectful conversation, and you know, you'll never know where it's going to lead. Good word. So with that, we are going to take a 10-minute break. Um, just a reminder that on your tables are note cards, and around there are hi-hat tables with baskets. If you do have questions for the panel, please fill those out, put those in the basket, and we will get to as many as we can during the next section. We do want to get you out as close to 8.30 as we possibly can. So 10-minute break, grab some cookies and coffee, and we'll be back for our closing segment in about 10 minutes. Thank you for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends, and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.